Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Intercepted. I'm John Schwartz, a senior writer with The Intercept. Today's episode has three guests, and they are all going to talk about the Federal Reserve. You might ask, why are we having an all-Fed episode? Well, you know, obviously just for the clicks. Uh, the Federal Reserve milkshake brings everybody to the yard. Damn right, it's better than yours, I could teach you, but I have to charge my Federal Reserve. Brings all the boys to the yard, and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn now, that's a joke, but it shouldn't be a joke. The Fed milkshake should bring everybody to the yard because it's the most powerful economic force in the U.S., which means it's the most powerful economic force on Earth. And yet, it is rarely talked about among non-weirdos. Many Americans have no idea it even exists. People who do know it exists often have bonkers ideas about it. They think it's terrible and rigs the economy, which, you know, is sort of true, but it doesn't rig things in a thrilling conspiratorial way. It rigs them in a boring way. You can read about it at your local library. And, you know, honestly, one of the very best things for me about working at The Intercept is the strangely high percentage here of people who like to talk about the Federal Reserve as much as I do. Uh, The only other way to get that is probably to be like a bond trader on Wall Street. And as much as I like to talk about the Fed, I'm not willing to go that far. So first, I'm talking today to my Intercept co-workers, Ken Klippenstein and Daniel Bogislaw, about what they've uncovered in a new article about how the Fed really works and who it truly listens to. Ken and Daniel are both investigative reporters with The Intercept's DC Bureau. Ken, Dan, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having us. Thanks, John. So can you uh, just tell us the basics about what you guys found when you investigated how the Fed really works and who is trying to persuade it to do what? Sure. So... People generally know the close relationship between the Federal Reserve and banks. Uh, the local branches are, are run by boards that in, in each regional bank are comprised of, of a majority of members who are chosen by the banks. Obviously, there's lots of public interaction um, in a highly regulated space. But what we really wanted to, to cut down into was the aspects of communication between banks and the Federal Reserve that aren't largely understood by the public or in some cases experts. Uh, many of the people we talked to, whether they were former Fed officials, whether they were subject matter experts, were shocked as we were to find out that the Federal Reserve can be lobbied in the same way that Congress can. They, these are you know lobbyists who who meet with Fed officials, they're on the books, they're reported on lobbying disclosure forms, and they're targeting all kinds of regulatory oversight measures. Those could be things like 
regulations on, on overdraft, uh, digital layaway, uh, credit limits, really any kind of consumer banking issue. We, we, did, we found lobbyists going in who are paid uh, to make their case. And to both us and, you know, the people we spoke to, I think this was kind of shocking because for the most part, people understand there is a constant flow of communication, but the degree to which this was taking place, uh, the number of different advocacy organizations registered, you know, over 100 in 2022 alone was pretty surprising. And can you talk a little bit about who these specific groups were and who they represent? I'll talk a little bit more in detail about that. Yeah. So these groups really rep- run the gamut of financial service providers. I mean, on the one hand, you have the, the biggest banks, Chase, Barclays, Capital One, JP Morgan, but you also have groups like Amazon. You have groups like Facebook uh, who are coming in and trying to target really specific regulatory functions of the Fed and are investing tons of money in this body that is supposed to be charged with a neutral stance. Um, And just like in Congress, you have big money coming in and completely tilting the scales in in a way that represents corporate interests over consumers who don't have this type of access. And also to give you guys a sense of um, the stakes here, and the reason really that we were interested in doing this story is that we're looking down the barrel of a, a Fed manufactured recession um, in the form of its, uh, you know, really aggressive interest rate hikes that we've written about um, recently that threatened to uh, drive up unemployment, which is understood to be the consequence of those policies, um, in an effort to bring down uh, inflation. To quote Jerome Powell, he said that his goal is, quote, to uh, bring down wages, and then bring down inflation. I mean, it, it, it really depends on how long it takes for wages and, and more than that, prices to, to come down, for, for inflation to come down. And you, you, so you, what you see in our, in our projections today is that uh, inflation moves down uh, you know, significantly over the course of next year and then more the next year after that. And you know, I think, I think um, once you're on that path, that's that's a good thing. Uh, the idea being that those two are in some way connected, which you know I don't think there's a very compelling argument for. But that's really what made us interested in you know who 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 is who is pushing the Fed, and not to say that we found evidence directly of uh, banking uh, involvement in the um, interest rate hikes themselves. But it should be said that the banks are profiting off of um, higher higher interest rates because that's you know that's in part how they make their money and um what was sort of astonishing in 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 researching sort of the context of all this was seeing the many uh varied the kind of like varied people warning about this um everyone from you know senators like Elizabeth Warren to the United Nations recently put out a statement warning it's like their economic arm warning that um the uh, Fed and other central banks internationally, hiking up interest rates as rapidly as they have been can have a magnifying effect, wherein the 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 effect on unemployment can end up having a sort of runaway uh, outcome that, that ends up being a lot higher than they anticipated, because you're supposed to stagger these things out. The idea is that there's a lag time um, after uh, central banks um, hike interest rates and the effect on, on unemployment. And unfortunately, they're doing this stuff really quickly. I mean, if you look at what Powell is doing now, it's beyond what's happened in uh, maybe a decade. And if you look back at the Trump administration, um, when Powell, the chair then and also the chair now, 
um, was hiking interest rates, uh, President Trump launched a pressure campaign against him to get him to stop it. We shouldn't have a Fed rate that's higher than our competitor nations. You look at Germany, they're essentially uh, under zero. They're negative. There are many countries negative. Japan is negative. Germany is negative. Others are negative. Uh, and we're paying higher interest rates. And what I'd like to do is, frankly, refinance our debt. I, we could refinance our debt very easily at a much lower rate. We have, a, we have some tremendous opportunities right now, but Jerome Powell is not making it easy. No, but it seemed as though that, that succeeded, because not only did they stop hiking interest rates, they actually brought it back down um, once, the, once the pandemic came around. And now, if you look at what President Biden has said, uh, he has asserted repeatedly that he's going to respect the uh, independence of the Fed, and that's really what made us interested in this subject: is how how independent is the Fed? Because this seems to be something that a lot of people in Washington just sort of assume. How much evidence for that? And I think what we found is that there's not a whole lot. Yeah, and so in a sense, all these people lobbying the Fed form a kind of creditors' lobby, and there is a debtors' lobby, which is maybe three people and they all belong to the group fed up. So it really is an extraordinary imbalance. It's it's even more than you would expect. And and one thing that surprised me reading about this that I I'd never thought about was how deeply it goes when you have them uh, even consulting with people in academia who have their own uh, unrevealed conflicts of interest. Yeah. So this was this was a really interesting point that was brought up um in our piece by uh, a former New York Fed uh, official. And his point was basically you have these academics who are not registered as lobbyists. You know, they, their public-facing personas are as academic experts. But, you know, there's no reporting requirement um, for academics who have one foot in the door of academia and one foot in the door of, of corporate consulting or, or you know, who, who take in large sums of in speaking fees to then speak with Fed officials uh, without disclosing, you know, their their corporate ties. And the classic example given was obviously Larry Summers, who's made millions of dollars uh, in speaking fees and who is very tight-lipped uh, about the full extent of his ties to all sorts of organizations, including the banks who he lobbied for bailouts for in, uh, in the fallout of the 2008 financial crash. And you know, you see the kind of the hard power of these paid lobbyists, which I think is, is familiar to most people uh, who are familiar with, you know, the way lobbying Congress works. But then you have all these other back channels for interactions between Fed officials and stakeholders. And as one former Fed economist told me, the way their communication policy is written is is general enough that there are not hard reporting requirements for some of these meetings, but that doesn't mean that they don't go against the ethos of that document and also the ethos of what the Fed is supposed to be for, which is serving you know the American people and, and, and not banks. Yeah. In some ways, I, I thought that the forms of informal lobbying that take place, that is the kinds that are not reported, was one of the most surprising aspects of the story. Because you look at the formal lobbying that's reported, and that really is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and Again, I can't tell you how weird it was to talk to, you know, longtime experts in these things and to have they themselves not aware that um, either the formal or informal lobbying was taking place. And it's sort of amazing that as far as I can tell, there's never been any reporting um, on that fact. And can you guys talk about some of the the scandals involving Fed officials and uh, things that haven't been scandals but should be? 
Yeah, these are things that Senator Elizabeth Warren has, um, you know, done a really good job of drawing attention to, warning about, and actually cited in her opposition to um, Jerome Powell's appointment, namely that he was going to have a, you know, deregulating effect on this institution that has a very important job of of regulating the big banks to make sure that something like 2008, 2009 financial crisis doesn't happen again. And in fact, when you look at the um, formal lobbying that, that we cited, that's what a lot of it was focused on is dismantling the regulations and protections put in place to prevent another uh, banking crisis. But I would also add to that, that, you know, if you look at the scandals from the past, say, year and a half, you know, you have, you have clear, clear violations of the most basic tenets of the Fed's policies. You know, these are issues that I think represent something far greater than individual transgression. I mean, when you have scandal after scandal after scandal, it, it, it points to the fact that there is a culture of corruption at the Federal Reserve. There is a, a, a day-to-day operational intent that is fixated on the fact that a lot of these officials are going to go straight into Wall Street when they when they leave their job at the Federal Reserve and there's no there's nothing preventing that from happening and so there's there's nothing you know every now and then a scandal emerges and there's talk of as Powell you know as Powell said greater oversight on on trading but that's a piecemeal solution to a much bigger problem which is the fact that there there's total synchronicity between the interests of these banks and the people who currently work at the Fed who see a golden parachute on their way out. Yeah, it's interesting. In researching this story, I got the impression that, you know, there were mixed attitudes as to um, Jerome Powell's appointment, because recall, uh, Trump appointed him and then Biden appointed him again in 2021. There was some question, but if he would get someone more progressive. And the argument seemed to be that, you know, he's not great on financial oversight regulations kind of stuff. However, he's he's a dove with regard to um, interest rates and inflation. So so that makes it worth it. And as we're seeing now, that whole dove persona has kind of gone out the window um, since inflation has increased. And so I think we're in a situation now where they end up got it, getting the, the worst of both worlds, uh, him, you know, having a very laissez-faire attitude towards regulations in addition to a very hawkish attitude now towards um, rate hikes. So can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of what you found, including the culture of just, you know, this revolving door between the Fed and industry? Yeah. So one of the main examples we used, we looked at uh, the Bank Policy Institute, or BPI, and this is one of the largest banking lobby groups um, lobbying the Fed. And every former employee of this group that we spoke with, and these are people across the, the political spectrum, conceded the fact that there are vast opportunities for informal conversations between Fed officials and members of their lobbying group, whether that was at meetings, whether that was phone calls, and that there's just a total sieve going on with absolutely no oversight mechanism. The executive vice president and chief economist of BPI was formerly a member, uh, uh, employee of the Federal Reserve, interacting with the board of governors and people at the highest level there. Now he works for one of the biggest bank lobbies. So because of its its quasi-independent status, there is just not the same types of oversight you have in other governmental agencies. So this is super interesting, and I encourage everyone to read this article, which we will link to in the show notes. And lastly, I want to quote one of your sources on this who said, the average person has no idea how much money is made off of being able to hear what people in the Fed hear. 
and there are a ton of former Fed economists on Wall Street. Congress has given the Fed a mandate to serve the American people, and the people go well beyond the 1%. The Fed needs a wake-up call, and heads need to roll at the top. If there's no accountability, nothing changes. Then it's just words. So your source who said that was Claudia Somm, a former economist at the Fed, and we will be speaking with her next. Ken and Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks, John. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm now joined by Claudia Somm, a former economist with the Federal Reserve. Claudia, welcome to Intercepted. Oh, I am always happy to talk about the Fed. This is one of my passions. So, All right. We have a lot of Fed talking to do, so let's get mm-hmm. started. Uh, my belief is that there are only maybe 10 people in America who truly understand the Fed and how it works and why it's important and also think seriously about it. And uh, I am not one of them, but you are. So... Uh, let's begin at the beginning. What is the Fed doing? It's being reckless. I mean, there's really no other way to put what the Federal Reserve is doing right now. Now, specifically, what is it doing? It is raising its federal funds rate. That's the policy interest rate that the Federal Open Market Committee uh, has control over. It is raising that interest rate aggressively. It is going fast. It is going big. And it is destabilizing financial markets, the global economy, and the United States economy went into this period of very aggressive Federal Reserve hiking in a place of strength. Our labor market is knock it out of the park, right? We have had a job full recovery. This has not happened in many recessions. Low-wage workers have gotten raises. There are families who have money in the bank that have never had it. So the Federal Reserve right now, raising interest rates to quote unquote soften the labor market, which basically means they're trying to throw a bunch of people out of work, get a bunch of people not to get raises because Americans, we, we spend, I was a lead on consumer spending. There are many, many people who it's money in money out. Some of that is just because we like to spend, but for a lot of people, it's because they have to basic necessities have always been expensive, like housing. So the way to destroy demand in the United States, which is the path the Fed is taking to bring down inflation, the way to destroy demand is to destroy jobs. And they use a lot of euphemisms for it, the softening of the labor market, but like just call a spade a spade, right? This is the tool they have now. 
they get to decide how big, how fast. And that's why I say they're being reckless, because it's clear at this point, particularly as we've watched the global economy deteriorate, and we got a warning from the UK that financial markets are kind of on pins and needles, the, the Fed should be backing off. And uh, the last thing I'd say on that is when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, I mean, mortgage rates are over 7% now, right? Like, it takes a while for it to work its way through the economy. Like when I say they're trying to destroy jobs, like they can't do it right away. So they raise interest rates, say the mortgage interest rates. We've seen uh, housing loans purchases are really falling off. And so, you know, if you're a realtor, you ain't making a lot of commissions now, which means you aren't going to the store and buying as much. Well, if you don't buy as much, there don't need as many workers. So this spiral gets going and those workers that get laid off at the at the you know the clothing store well then they don't go out and spend as much so this is why when we talk about monetary policy there's this old adage of long and variable lags i mean the long piece is kind of obvious it just takes some time um the full effects of what the federal reserve has done this year will not hit the us economy until probably the middle of next year so think about that and then variable just means you know, we don't exactly know when it's going to happen. Like it could be in three months. It could be in six months. It could be the end of next year. Like it's just hard to predict things, but they know, they know what they're doing right now is too much. Um, but they're obsessed with their credibility as an inflation fighter. And they're putting the institution over the American people. It's really sad. Yeah. I, I think that if you ask most people in America, they do not understand that there is this institution at the center of the American economy that at certain points, like right now, decides we're going to throw a lot of Americans out of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is uh, the Federal Reserve. It's important to remember it is an unelected, unaccountable institution. It was created by Congress. It has a role to play. I am, central banks are important. I. It's just, you know, when they go rogue, I, I am not happy about this. Uh, Congress created the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Board of Governors, the seven individuals, including the chair of the Federal Reserve, they are nominated by the president and Senate confirmed. So they are they have some accountability, but that's really a pretty thin thread. And frankly, a lot of members of Congress don't understand the Fed. Um, and then the Reserve Bank president, so there are 12 Reserve Banks across the country. Uh, this was in the design, the original design of the Federal Reserve. And the Reserve Bank presidents are basically appointed by the banks in their district. I mean, talk about a conflict of interest, because the Federal Reserve also has oversight over the large banks or just banks in general in the United States. So, yeah, and five of them, there's 12 votes. There's 12 voting members at any point in time. The seven board of governors, five of the um, Reserve Bank presidents, the New York Fed is always voting, and then the other four seats uh, rotate. But I mean, seriously, 12 people unelected are sitting there making decisions that could easily tank the global economy and undermine efforts to preserve democracy in Ukraine and the gains in the labor market in the United States. I mean, it is just like mind-blowing. But again, I don't think a lot of people have that understanding of the Fed, where it came from, what its constraints are, who it reports to, and its history, right? Like, the world did not start in the 1970s. 
right? There is a long history of central banking that goes back to the early 1900s. And, you know, we have a pandemic and a war in Europe. This is a lot more like 1918 than it is 1978. Yeah, I would say that that most people do not know about or if they know about, do not understand the Fed, and that's exactly how the Fed likes it. Mm-hmm. No, and I've, it's, I mean, I have, I worked at the Federal Reserve for over a decade. I've learned about a lot about the institution and its history on my own. I'm just fascinated with how, how this thing came to be. And I will say that the people who work at the Federal Reserve, my former colleagues, are so dedicated. I mean, these are public servants, and they take that very seriously. And and truly, I believe the members of the Federal Open Market Committee are doing what they think is best. So I'm not questioning anyone's motives, per se. Um, but it is an institution that has been very closed off. It has some very serious ethical issues, and it just it has a lot of power, and it is not very accountable. And I think it's important for people to understand. I mean, this. This could potentially be a problem, and it is a problem that Congress can solve, right? The Federal Reserve, like Congress maketh and it can taketh, right? Or it can adjust the the parameters. So I just, it's um, unfortunate. And I don't think the Fed even appreciates, like, that they're not all powerful here, right? Like it's a very, and the macroeconomics profession in general has fed this, this attitude that the technocrats should be in charge and not the politicians, which is just, I mean, that's like full on undemocratic, right? It's just. Yeah. And can, can you talk about why that is how the federal reserve was structured? Because I would say based on my understanding of this history, that it's a, it's structured this way for a very basic political reason, which is that if you have a country with enormous levels of income inequality, uh, the people at the top, have a lot of money, they are always going to be terrified that the people at the bottom are going to try to inflate that away, just you know, print a lot of money, and then their, their uh, glorious, luscious savings are worthless or worth a lot less. And so the idea is that if you give regular people the power, like they'll go nuts and destroy everything. And that's why the Fed is the way that it is. Going back to the origin of the Fed helps put some context on it. And it actually goes beyond the monetary policy. Like right now we talk about the federal funds rate in 75 versus 50. The core function, the founding function of the Federal Reserve, and this is true for most central banks, is to be what's called a lender of last resort. So when financial markets go haywire, the Fed steps in and is a backstop. I mean, they just they brought out the big guns in March of 2020 and backstopped all kinds of markets. And I mean, I want financial markets to function like it would be bad for Main Street, Wall Street, you name it. Now, the reason the Federal Reserve exists is so through many banking crises leading up to kind of the very start of the 1900s, it was when the bank, when there was a run on banks, when there was some kind of financial crisis, a market, it was J.P. Morgan the man and his friends who would decide. So these big financiers in um, on Wall Street would decide which banks survived and which didn't, which institutions got the loans and which didn't. Okay, so there are some problems with that setup, right? <laughs> and so um, they convened a group of very powerful politicians, uh, very powerful titans of Wall Street, um, some business interests, because, um, you know, having a bank fail is very bad for businesses. And they actually took them 
to Jekyll Island. Uh, the pretext was they were going on a duck hunt. Uh, in fact, they were not going on a duck hunt. They were going to have, they had a, a secret meeting about um, setting up the Federal Reserve. And so, I mean, that's where we start, right? Like behind closed doors, uh, clearly um, the potential for conflict of interest, right? And so it just, like it's, it has been baked in the DNA of the Federal Reserve from the beginning. And, and it absolutely puts precedent for some good reasons and some not, right? Like the lender of last resort is a real thing and the Fed works through financial markets. So there's a reason it has close ties to Wall Street, but it's also, it gets too close sometimes. And to your point, like in the discussions about fighting inflation, I was, you know, workers living paycheck to paycheck are struggling with inflation. And I mean, to me, it's like, don't, don't sell this on poor people, right? Because by definition, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and you lose a paycheck, you're done. Right. And we never talk about, well, it's the people who have big savings. And I don't mean like, you know, you've got your 401k. I mean, like you're full on 1%, right? Inflation eats away at the purchasing power of that savings, in particular, if you've been lending it out. For people who are carrying mortgages, credit card debt, they're paying it back, high inflation, not like super high inflation, but I mean, right now it's come down a good bit, but like inflation actually makes it less costly when they repay, right? It kind of, it makes that the value of the purchasing power less, and, but the opposite is for the people who are lending. And whenever we talk about the cost of inflation, very conveniently, it's all about on the spending side, like, oh, it's more expensive. And there are very few analyses that bring in the comprehensive picture of the spending and the financial, um, you know, quote unquote, balance sheets of households. And if you put that together, there's a lot of research that says it nets out to either a zero or it's actually better off for um, like particularly like middle, low middle class families that are carrying big debts like mortgages. I will say just I know with my own family that my parents bought a house in the 1970s at exactly the right time. And then inflation radically reduced the value of the mortgage that they had to pay. And, you know, my father was getting raises that kept up with inflation. So that inflation actually was very good for my family. And I was surprised, I wrote an article recently, like even I was surprised to see that since the beginning of 2020, that the net worth of the bottom 50% of Americans has doubled. And I think about half of that is the you know cost of housing, like the the home prices jumped up, but the other half, you know, is real money for a lot of people, as you mentioned, like people have money in the bank for the first time. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been hard to be a macroeconomist um, actually since I started the Federal Reserve in two thousand seven. It's a I care a lot about people, and I often say caring is an occupational hazard in macro. I think that's true. Um, but when I want to cheer myself up, I go then look at the Federal Reserve created a, a data tool called the Distributional Financial Accounts. And it allows every quarter to have a picture of all the, the financial assets, all the, the net worth in the United States, what, who's holding it. By say per, by groups by wealth by income they have estimates by race. I go and I look at the the wealth of the bottom fifty percent, and it goes back to like the late nineteen eighties. So you can see the time series. In the Great Recession, we completely. I mean, 
the bottom 50% has had basically not much. And um, in the grand scheme of our financial markets, uh, the Great Recession totally decimated what was there. And a lot of that was the housing crisis. And people were basically shut out of getting back into housing uh, when the house prices um, came back. And like, if you look at it after we came out of this recession, it's just, it makes me so happy. Like that, there's something there now. Now, and it's still rising. I mean, people, the the higher prices do eat into the money at the bank. And there are absolutely people who are suffering right now. Like I do not want to downplay inflation is legit too high. Um, but we still see these assets rising. And a lot of that people are getting raised. They have income. They have jobs, right? And you can put some aside. I was talking with a macroeconomist who follows all this very carefully and he was like, I just, I can't believe they haven't spent it all. Because there's this view that like poor people don't have savings because they just can't like, you know, hold back. Like they just spend whatever is like some, you know, and it's like, you know what? I, people don't have savings because we pay them crap. Like, I mean, you know, it's and, and basic necessities are expensive. So it makes me very happy to see this. It's like proof of, comf- you know, we can help people. They can have savings on the site so they can do what they need for their family in a moment of crisis or just to get ahead, invest in their kids. Do In any case, that makes me happy. But because I can't be too happy right now, um, this is not a good world we live in. So then I flip over and you can add to the 50%, the bottom 50%, I add the top 1%. And then that little thin red line at the bottom is the 50% and just the 1% over time. Like there's some reward for like being innovative and create and running, but, but it's like, come on, like this is so far past what you need to incentivize like a dynamic economy. This is like creating the opposite of a dynamic economy. This is creating like oligarchs, in the United States. And it's just, it it will hurt us all. It has hurt us all, but it's a good tool to like drill down under the big numbers, the aggregate. And it's like, okay, who, who's got this? So there's some really good news. And from this particular, like helping families having a job full recovery. And then there's some really longstanding bad news. If we have a massively unequal economy. Yeah, I, again, I was shocked, like looking at those numbers about the bottom 50% of Americans that, you know, as you say, it begins in the late 1980s, the, the statistics. And uh, during that time, the size of the US economy has about doubled, right? And so you would expect at the very least, you would want to see the net worth of the bottom 50% also doubling during that time. But instead, it just went nowhere. For decades, then you had the Great Recession uh, starting in 2007. It crashed. The net worth of the bottom 50% just zoomed downwards. Then it like sort of like s- slowly crawled its way back, painfully up to where it had been in 1989 by 2020, like 30 years later. And it is only now that it has like zoomed upwards in the last couple of years. And as I understand it, is now about like, double of what it was. 30 years ago. Again, that's not a lot. The bottom 50% of Americans have a shockingly low amount of wealth. But nonetheless, you know, it, you would at least want it to have doubled. And, and now it has. And my perspective is like, let's let's build on this winning streak rather than trying to to bludgeon the economy so it collapses again. Yeah, I mean, we learned, we've learned so much in this crisis 
I'm deeply afraid that we're some of the elites, uh, the powerful elites in macroeconomic policy, say, are going to take the absolute wrong lesson. Uh, For example, the rescue plan, and I was a proponent of it. I am, I have done a lot of research on and did a lot of advising on the stimulus checks, also the unemployment insurance, but the the stimmies are my, uh, that's one of my big focuses. And I was adamant and am still adamant that the American Rescue Plan was some of the best policy that has been put out in like decades and decades in the United States. Now, it's not time for a victory lap. So I'm, you know, uh, you know, we need a full recovery. We had a job full recovery. We got money to people. Right. Within the first year of the covid crisis, a family of four, so two adults, two uh, kids, got $11,400 in just the stimulus checks. That's nearly 20% of median family income, and that's 25% of black family median income. That wasn't an accident, right? Like the rescue plan was designed to be the bridge to the other side of this crisis and and to push the recovery to really get us back on track. It did both of that thing, those things. The labor market it is in a very good place. There's still a lot of damage. Long COVID is a huge problem. We had such disruptions. We don't have everyone back. And frankly, we're not going to, I mean, a million Americans died of COVID. And we have a very serious long COVID health issues that are still working themselves out among, you know, we're missing immigrants. I mean, there's just a lot of problems in the labor market. And all that put aside... We have the unemployment rate is near its 50-year low. Low-wage workers got raises last year. I mean, corporations have told us these people weren't worth raises. Well, guess what? <laughs> they are <laughs> if you have enough, if you need them bad enough. So that, and then the other piece is the relief to get us to the other side. And all of the inflation hawks, and there's still individuals who say the rescue plan was like, the devil itself or something outrageous, but that like none of the inflation hawks when the rescue plan was being debated talked about Delta or Omicron or Putin. I mean, hell I would have, I think the world would have loved a heads up on those three horrible events that came later into 2021. And so like, we are still in a crisis and there's some of that money that like was put in the bank Right. So the rescue plan is doing exactly what it was designed to do. And a lot of the inflation, not all of it, but a lot of the inflation is coming from disruptions to the productive capacity, whether it's workers getting them back to work or supply chains, getting our cheap goods from Asia here or, you know, the energy price. Like we have Putin in Ukraine causing massive problems. I mean, loss of human life, threat to democracy, but also energy prices, energy shortages, potentially food price. I mean, like these are all things like we're still in a bad place. And the United States, nobody else did the rescue plan. There is a reason the United States in this moment comes into the ongoing crisis in a position of strength. And I just, I'm so worried. And as I see it, this really is not just an issue about money and like how much money they have, but it is the fear that people will recognize that if they can get control of the government, it is an incredibly powerful tool that can be used as it was used in these circumstances to make life better for regular people. Like 
not perfect. Like, like there's still an enormous number of problems, but that power is available to people if they realize that it's there and they don't want regular people to understand that. Yeah, it's a very strange, I mean, again, the members of Congress stepped up. I mean, the CARES Act was a bipartisan effort. The Democrats really pulled it together with the rescue plan. There's been other good policy to kind of um, make the U.S. economy more resilient. So the infrastructure, like, oh my gosh, we actually have an energy policy now. Um, and the CHIPS Act. I think, you know, there's there. I've been impressed in the White House opening up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to get gas prices down. I mean, Congress has been doing a lot of good policy. Like, they showed up this time. And I don't... <sighs> I don't know. Like, I don't even really care how we got here in terms of them doing something. But like the rich and powerful are still very influential in Washington, D.C. So I think this was just a crisis of such epic proportions that you just they stepped in. Right. So I think and what we will learn. Oh, and another good policy that came through was the child tax credit. I mean, the reduction in child poverty, particularly deep poverty, was just, I mean, something we should have seen in the United States generations ago. I mean, no child should be living in poverty in the richest country in the world. Like, this is just, poverty is a policy choice. Democrats, Republicans have chosen this for children. Now, it expired. This is very tragic. But we have proof of, of like, concept Right? Like we know how to fight poverty now for children and it ain't work. It's not the earned income tax credit. Like it's giving them money kind of like, duh. Um, but we did it for a year and we're going to see the positive effects. I mean, there's more and more research coming out. So there was a lot of good policy for this moment in this crisis, but there was a lot of good policy there that if applied going forward would have massive benefits for the U.S. economy and just massive benefits for people. I mean, setting aside, you know, GDP or whatever. Yeah. And and again, I think that that is exactly what a lot of people like don't want Americans to understand. Like we, we could have kept the street going, as I say. Now, let, let's let's talk just about uh, some specifics about what the Fed can do uh, formally, what I think it could do informally and what it can't do and the rest of the government needs to do. Uh, I would say that you know clearly corporate profits are part of the inflation story. You know they are now higher than they have been as a percentage of the economy since I think 1950. And the Fed, as I understand it, like doesn't have any formal power over that. But I have to believe that if the Fed, uh, you know, directed some of its economists to do research on this, to really drill down and investigate, it's like here are the numbers, here much, here's how much of inflation is due to higher corporate profits. And then the Fed publicized this. Uh, just the uh, political pressure that would be generated by that would uh, get boardrooms to search like, hey, we, we need to cut this out. And so am, am I right about that from your experience with the Fed? And so I disagree that even if the Fed did all that, and there is research being done and has been published on, you know, the corporate, how the uh, the structure, market structure, it could be affecting inflation, not just now, but in, or other ways it affects the economy too. The thing is, is we have a shareholder economy, right? Like we have a lot of big businesses that 
you know, the shareholders are going to, they want to make money. There's, you know, they do um, buybacks. They bring, instead of investing in the corporation, they give it to the shareholders. Shareholders are happy. They give big raises to the C-suite, right? Like, but this is the economy we have. Uh, Congress, through its regulatory powers, can, like, soften the edges some, Right. Like I'm pro capitalism. I, you know, there's we have a very dynamic economy. It's not like all things are bad. And frankly, in a moment like this, you know, what do you expect? This is the economy we have. They're going to make profits. Right. You can't ask them. You can't ask companies to go against their shareholders who are going to go against the, you know, bonus. I mean, we're human beings. Right. And then this is a system we have now. So I don't think the Fed has any real ability to affect this. I think Congress does. I think the president, the White House does. And bringing awareness to it. There's um, some really interesting research. This was from a while ago that Bob Schiller, who was also a super creative uh, macroeconomist and academic, and it was just asking people, like, how do you think about inflation, Right. Not like, how do the macroeconomic models think? Because, I mean, they get a lot of it wrong. But it's just asking people. Actually, it was an interesting study. They asked people, and then, and then they asked economists, right? So you can then do comparisons. Um, and the thing is with inflation, I mean, clearly it's bad. People are angry about it. And it does create some hardship, if not just anger, that you don't have to go in and buy the same thing and pay more. Um, but they want to blame somebody, right? And... Uh, I mean, the thing that just blows my mind is like, we talk about inflation, like it's this blob of inflation. It just like comes from nowhere, right? And it's, you know, businesses, they write the price tag down, right? Again, I'm not criticizing the profit incentive, but like business and like normal people, this is not lost on them, right? Like it's the business owner that raises the prices. It's the corporation that raises the prices, in a discussion, and I've spent a lot of time talking to business owners, small ones and larger corporations, they're a little hard to get information out of, but just like, what are you thinking? Like you keep raising those prices so high, the Fed is going to tank the economy. And I guarantee you are not going to make good profits <laughs> if the economy, but it's just, you know, we have a complicated system. The Fed can't, the Fed can't change the structure of the U.S. economy. I mean, frankly, Congress can't big picture either. I mean, we're, not, you know, moving towards a whole other economic structure, but they can do things to um, address the extent to which we do have, you know, the quote unquote profiteering. And frankly, the other thing Congress could do right now is um, go in and levy an a tax on extraordinary profits. I mean, there is a precedent for this. It actually has, if you do it properly, it doesn't disincentivize future um, production. Um, and I think there's an absolutely valid case to do that for energy and food corporations right now. And there's some cases of it being done in Europe. All right. And then also specifically about housing, you know, obviously uh, the cost of homes has gone up. <laughs> to at a really extraordinary rate. Uh, the cost of renting has gone up. You mentioned uh, now that the Fed, in order to cool the economy down, has now uh, set things where the mortgage rate is up to 7%. So that also seems like a problem. Like, is there a better way for the Fed or for Congress to deal with that kind of asset inflation? 
Yeah, so I'm really excited that the rich and powerful are finally worked up about housing costs because it's, you know, affecting inflation that's damaging their wealth. Um, The United States has for a very long time, going well before COVID, had an affordable housing crisis. The fraction of Americans who have spent more and more of their income on housing is just like it was rising. It is unacceptable, right? People need a roof over their head. The other thing that came out with the one feature of the U.S. economy, and this is really this is really depressing. So housing costs, whether it's house prices or rents, I mean, in general, they tend to, when the labor market gets really good, it, housing becomes even less affordable. And uh, the, the reason this happens is, well, you know, if you get a job, you get a raise, well, you can move out from mom and dad's. You might even go get married. You might like start a family. You need to, you know, you got more kids, you buy a bigger house. So we have a um, housing market in the United States that is so like just running on empty that when good things happen, it creates this hardship on housing. Now, this is not an unsolvable problem. The Fed can't solve this problem. The Fed will actually make it worse. Like high interest rates discourage home building, right? So like, and that we don't need less home building. We need more home building. Okay, but like, it's really not that hard. We need more supply. We need more homes. One of the um, programs that was in Build Back Better um, was to just build affordable housing units. I mean, in some of this, you could just go through private sector too and just make it... um, cost-effective, profitable for small builders to build homes, right? That hit the cutting room floor. It absolutely should have been in the Inflation Reduction Act because it fits within that piece of creating more supply that wouldn't bring inflation down now or next year, but it would protect us from the next time we have a great recovery that it doesn't like mess up housing prices. And this time, actually, housing prices, and this doesn't get talked enough about, although there's good Federal Reserve research on this, among others, is um, the pandemic, when everything shut down, and there were a lot of professionals that could do work from home, there still are, um, people moved around the country. Like, people moved from very high-cost areas like San Francisco, and sometimes they were just buying another home, right? And they would march into one of these, you know, something in... Utah or Arizona, you know, just like nice places to be that were where the houses were less costly. And they would roll in with all kinds of cash and the market couldn't adjust fast enough in terms of building, particularly because we had these supply chain problems. You couldn't get garage doors to finish houses. And so that just like people moving around the country, it was really disruptive. Disruptions take time like people can move a lot faster than like homes can be built, right? And so that's actually a piece of the housing cost, the housing price increases that like nobody talks about. And that's one of those supply disruptions that it's kind of working itself out. Like there are still a large number of homes that are in construction and have not finished yet, right? Because the build. So but fundamentally, like this, the lesson we should take for this from this is not the Fed needs to tank the economy. It's that we have an affordable housing crisis. We need to build more housing. Let's move on to the 
the nutty part of the podcast. Okay. So, Claudia, I have a question for you that I suspect you have never been asked before, which is this. In anthropology, there is a concept called social silence. And social silence is a phenomenon that has been observed in all kinds of societies where the questions and the institutions that lie at the, like the very heart of power of those societies are exactly the ones that people in general do not talk about and do not debate. And that's easy to understand. Like if, if you imagine a country that has an absolute monarch and the belief is, you know, they're descended from God and their uh, son should be the next king, like you don't have a lot of like op-ed pages like talking about like, is he really descended from God? Like it's just not a subject that people are going to discuss. And they even more so won't even really think about that. And my belief is that there is a kind of social silence that envelops the Fed. And it is something that people do not think about because it's like looking at the sun. Like, it's it's very difficult to come to terms with the fact that, uh, like, we just have a society that engages in this form of human sacrifice, where it's like, well, things aren't working for everybody. So you there, you lost your job. Uh, and so... My question is, do you think that there is anything to that, like to, the, to this general phenomenon, and does that apply to the Fed? And if so, even more interestingly, like, like how do we break this social silence and talk about what really matters? It absolutely applies to the Fed. The example that is most, I think, most important is the, the independence of the Fed. And this, and what that means is that basically Congress, Congress created the Fed and gave it a job to do. So in monetary policy space, that's stable prices and maximum employment. Now the Fed has, they get to decide, well, how do I even interpret that? What is, what does stable prices mean? What does maximum employment mean? And, and then the Fed gets to decide, okay, well, how are we going to do this job? They do have to go back twice a year to Congress and kind of like, here's what's going on in the economy. But Congress doesn't say, hey, instead of 75 basis points, I think that should be 50, right? Like there's this separation of um, Congress gave it its job and the Fed is out there doing its job. It kind of like the boss is not real hands-on, I guess how we say it, because Congress kind of like, just do your thing. Um, now, and, and like the Federal Reserve... And I think often Congress feels this way. It's like independence is some sacrosanct, like, like it's just something we could never question. We never talk about like, and it's, and they'll give examples. I mean, we don't, there have been times like in the 1970s, there was a big push with the Great Society. They're funding a war, doing programs at home. This was a lot of money going out of the federal government. There were not taxes raised to even come close to um, covering it. I mean, it was called like guns and butter, right? And the Federal Reserve did not get in the way of that. And, and it did contribute. And there are other factors in the U.S. economy. In the 1970s, we had a decade of high inflation, and, and it did become problematic. We've had like less than two years right now. But, you know, like the principle is if it keeps going, people will change their mentality about spending and wage price spiral and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we're not living in the 1970s. But but there have been times where the Federal Reserve has kind of stood out of the way and, and with political pressure, right? Okay, so fine. We don't want to be a banana republic. I mean, we're trying, to, but and not the Fed. Okay, so, but... The Fed is not, 
Independence of the Federal Reserve has not always been considered a good thing. In World War II, that was the last time that Congress and the Federal Reserve explicitly coordinated. It wasn't until 1951 that the Treasury Federal Reserve Accord was signed where it made clear we're not doing this anymore. Like the Fed is going to make its decisions, Congress make its decisions. Okay, so why was it a good idea in World War II? Okay, so the federal government, the United States, when we joined the war, was spending a serious amount of money to fund the war effort. You know, whether it's the tanks and the, you know, the planes or the people and, the, you know, so like, and that like, you know, they told the Federal Reserve, hey, keep those interest rates low. Because like the last thing we need to do is make it even more costly to fund a war in Europe, like defending democracy. Okay, so like that... That made sense. Now, after that war effort and these special circumstances ended, then it was kind of like, okay, we're going to stabilize the economy the way we think is the best way to do it, raise interest rates. And sometimes that might mean raising interest rates when government is spending, right? Because we're stabilizing the economy. Okay, but in a time of war, it was considered like the Fed should kind of follow Congress's lead. All right, so what do we have now? We have a war in Europe. Okay, so as Congress is spending hundreds of billions of dollars to get military aid to Ukraine, the Federal Reserve is jacking up interest rates. It's like they are making it more costly to fund the war effort, and they're encouraging the European Central Bank and the Bank of England to do the same thing. It's like stand down. To me, the way, the reason... I don't know that it's some nefarious reason the silence has, um, you know, shrouded the Fed. I think largely it's just a complete ignorance about the history of the Fed, the history of the U.S. economy. I mean, in 2022, the, the U.S. economy, financial markets are fundamentally different. I mean, they're fundamentally different since the 1970s. And they're fundamentally different than during World War II, right? I get this, but like independence is not a, you just can't touch it under any circumstance. Like we just don't contextualize policy in a way that really, like we're not thinking about it because like you said, we're not talking about it. So how can you have a debate? And I, and I could be wrong. Like maybe it is completely appropriate for the Fed to be jacking up interest rates and destroying the world. I don't think so, but we should have a real conversation about this and it shouldn't turn into this, oh, oh, politics, don't tell the Fed what to do, independence. Like, no, this is like, hello, we have a country and at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve serves the people, right? This is a federal, this is a government institution. This is not like its own thing. Um, but, you know, it, we need to have that conversation and we need to have it in a... Um, thoughtful, robust kind of way, but we're not having that conversation at all. And I'm really, I'm really concerned for central banks. I really think when the dust settles, they might not have that independence. It's going to be their fault. I mean, after the Great Recession, it was, it was such a horrible recovery. When the Tea Party came into Congress, they had a large and the Fed contingent. And audit the Fed was a real threat. So, I mean, this could be like way worse. And frankly, at this point, I just, I'm not shedding a tear for them. Like the Federal Reserve, it's inexcusable that they don't know the context and that they're not looking out at the world. And I mean, they've had some real serious ethical breaches recently. I just, I mean, I'm so deeply disappointed. And so it's like, fine, you, you all run yourself into the ground.
All right. So we're getting to the end of this podcast about the Fed. Uh, thank you so much. I want to say that uh, people on the right are wrong when they believe that the Fed is a terrible secret conspiracy against the American people. Uh, in fact, it is a uh, non-secret conspiracy. And you can read all about it, a lot of it, on the Feb's website. And uh, but it, it, nonetheless, it's a conspiracy, and it is very exciting to learn about. And uh, you know, we can we can change this and make it work for regular people, like if we care enough. So, Claudia, uh, thank you again so much for your time. And uh, everybody, check her out if you want to uh, join in on the Fed hype. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the chance to to be here today. That is it for this All Fed episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted for more Fed content uh, and also lots of other stuff. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixes our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Deconstructed, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you very much. Until next time, I'm John Schwartz. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.